0: Howdy folks, and thanks for tuning into the 10th episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming History Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kirsten Belisle.
1: And I'm Zach Larson. Both Kirsten and I work for the Fremont County Museum System, located in the heart of West Central Wyoming. Our county museum system has three museums in it, the Riverton Museum, the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center, and the Fremont County Pioneer Museum. All of our museums focus on telling the stories of early frontier life, Native American heritage, natural history, and general regional history.
0: Using artifacts from our three museums and interviews with experts, we're here to discover and in some cases rediscover the quirky, the heart-wrenching, and the fascinating history of Fremont County, Wyoming, and the American West. Last month, we talked about the timber industry around Dubois and the rich tie-hacking history the region possesses. This month, we've switched things up, and instead of recording at our normal Riverton location, Zach joined me at the Dubois Museum, where we're going to talk about a part of this region's history that tends to surprise people when they find out about it.
1: Surprising history usually is interesting history, though.
0: True, and I was definitely surprised and interested to learn that the town of Dubois, Wyoming was the site of a German prisoner of war camp during World War II. What's more, Dubois wasn't the only one. Wyoming had 19 POW camps within its border, including two in Fremont County, one in Dubois, and the other in Riverton.
1: So that's what we're here to talk about today, Wyoming prisoner of war camps. And joining us in this discussion is Cheryl O'Brien, local historian and author of an upcoming book entitled World War II POW Camps of Wyoming. Cheryl will join us a little later in the episode to share her research and knowledge on Wyoming's POWs and why they're important to our history.
0: But before we get to our interview with Cheryl, let's talk about this prisoners of war thing. Pretty much since the dawn of humankind, humans have realized that capturing, kidnapping, and imprisoning their enemies... Uh, was an effective way, or effective, not infective, eh, although I guess it depends on who you're asking. It was an effective way of exerting control during times of conflict. In antiquity, a.k.a. ancient Greeks, ancient Rome's treatment of prisoners of war was, to put it lightly, barbaric. POWs could be tortured, enslaved, and killed. Most warriors and most civilians preferred death to imprisonment by their enemies in, in antiquity.
1: The rampant murder, abuse, and general mistreatment of prisoners of war waned ever so slightly with the introduction of mediaeval codes of chivalry. In the sixteen hundreds the Treaty of Westphalia, a document that ended the Thirty Years' War and one of the most destructive conflicts in European history, ordered that all prisoners of the Thirty Years' War be released without payment of ransom and without any exception.
0: The Age of Enlightenment saw the Law of Nations published in seventeen fifty eight which declared, as soon as your adversary has been disarmed and has surrendered, no one any longer has any right to take his life. In 1863, good old Abraham Lincoln asked constitutional lawyer Francis Lieber to drop the world's first formal code of conduct conduct towards POWs, and Lieber proclaimed in his writings that POWs should be subject to no intentional infliction of any suffering or disgrace by cruel imprisonment, want of food, mutilation, death, or any other barbarity.
1: Unfortunately, starvation, mutilation, and death amongst prisoners of war populations did not stop with the written word. The military treaties of the 18th and 19th century far outpaced individual countries' ability to hold masses of captured men. What once were small bands of armed groups grew into continental armies, so traditional places of confinement like jails or dungeons were overwhelmed. During the American Revolution, thousands of continental soldiers died while on British ships, being used as impromptu prisons.
0: By the time of the American Civil War, formalized POW camps were well-known concepts and usually synonymous with misery. In 1864, 12 European nations met in Geneva, Switzerland to establish rules of war, thus beginning the Geneva Conventions.
1: Additional Geneva Conventions took place laying down rules for treatment of wounded military forces in the field, treatment of wounded and stranded military forces at sea, and the treatment of prisoners of war. But even with these rules, atrocities still occurred. The unprecedented carnage of the First World War shocked nations, but did not stop World War II combatants from committing their own crimes.
0: Adolf Hitler, a man we've all come to know and despise thanks to history class, came to power in Germany in 1933. Four years later, in 1937, Japan invaded China, and two years after that, in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, and France and Britain declared war on Germany. This meant that Asian and European countries were fighting for years before the United States became officially involved in the conflict. By January of 1942, a month after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the United States declared war on Japan and Germany declared war on the U.S., allied countries were well out of space and supplies for their POWs and requested help from the U.S. in housing prisoners.
1: So the U.S. acquiesced. The United States Office of Provost Marshal General supervised over 430,000 German and Italian prisoners of war housed on American soil. These camps sprang up all over the country and their operations followed the 1929 Geneva Convention Protocols for Prisoner Treatment.
0: And the 1929 Geneva Convention Protocols meant that any prisoner of war was treated with the same uh, conditions as officers and other enlisted men that were supervising them. So that actually brings us back to Wyoming, a sparsely populated state whose timber and agricultural industries were deemed incredibly important to a successful war effort. But without enough people to work in the sugar beet fields or to harvest lumber, these industries experienced labor shortages.
1: Enter in prisoners of war and the role they played on America's home front. And
0: here to tell us about Wyoming's POWs is Cheryl O'Brien. So thank you very much, Cheryl, for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for asking me. It's nice to be here. So, I'm Cheryl O'Brien. My family moved to Wyoming about 17 years ago from the Hudson Valley in New York State. I worked in the environmental field for a state agency for over 20 years before relocating here to Dubois. I've always been interested in World War II history and come from a military family. My father served in the Army Air Forces during World War II. My husband, Bill, served in the Navy during the the Vietnam conflict, and my stepson served in special forces.
0: So yours is a military family. It is. Awesome. So that probably ties in a little bit to our, our first question for you is how or really when did you find out about the POW camps around Wyoming?
2: Well, I first found out about the POW camp near Dubois soon after we moved here while we were exploring the old back roads in the area. I interviewed a local resident, Kip McMillan, back in 2007, and he shared his experience about visiting Camp Du Bois as a young child. His grandfather was Richter Van Mitri, president of the Wyoming Tie-In Timber Company, and the tie and Timber Company was responsible for requesting the POW camp to provide POW labor to cut timber, mainly to make railroad ties, which was considered critical to keep the railroads operating during the war.
0: Alrighty. So you said Ricker Van Meter? Mitri. Mitri. It's we've,
1: a, we've been saying that guy's name all wrong, haven't we? Uh, apparently.
0: Oops. <laughs> Sorry, family members. Sorry, Ricker. <laughs> yeah, we could just call him by his
1: first name. So I guess you've kind of already talked about this. Why did you decide to research POW camps specifically?
2: I was absolutely fascinated that there was a World War II POW camp so close to where we live, and I found out that there was very limited information and records about Camp DuBois, and I realized it, you know, it was important to find out more about the POW camp before the information was lost. I decided to research Camp DuBois, and then eventually all the POW camps in Wyoming. Awesome!
0: So it kind of branched out from DuBois. Woot, woot Sorry, I'm a little biased. Okay, so and just for the audience members listening to who might have heard about Heart Mountain internment camp by Cody, Wyoming or Powell, Wyoming, uh, there is a difference POW camps held prisoners of war, which were the military combatants captured. Um, and sent over here versus the internment camp like Heart Mountain uh, up by Cody, they held the Japanese Americans who were quarantined or uh, sent there during World War II due to government policies, uh, deciding that they were a threat to American Society. So that's what the difference is between the Heart Mountain internment camp, which we might have heard about, and these POW camps that Cheryl has spent many years um, researching. So, where has your research taken you, both location wise as well as research focus?
2: Well, my research has taken Bill and I across Wyoming to visit all the former POW campsites where we review local historic records and we look at old newspapers and we interview local residents about their memories of the camps and prisoners. I document details of the camp, but I really focus on the human side of the camps and the challenges faced by the POWs and the American military staff that were stationed at the camps, as well as the local groups and residents who used POW labor on their farms and in the timber camps.
1: Um, So what is your book about
2: well, my book, World War II, POW Camps of Wyoming, is about the 19 POW camps in Wyoming that include the two major camps and the 17 agricultural and timber branch camps that were set up to provide the prisoner labor for local needs. My book focuses on the men who lived and worked in the camps, and stories shared by the American military personnel and the prisoners and the local residents are included to give the reader a better idea about what life was like in the POW camps here in Wyoming. Very cool. So
0: you really took this research project and ran with it. I mean, you've really built this up from scattered archival materials and stories from people and created what is bound to be a really interesting book. I'm definitely pre-ordering that off Amazon as soon as I can. Um, but for those armchair historians wanting to write and to research out there, what kind of advice would you give to them to pursue those goals?
2: I would advise other writers and researchers to make sure they set up a real good comprehensive system to stay organized and keep track of your many sources, contacts, and all your information. But I think the best advice I could give is to enjoy your research and the many people that, that you meet along the way An intensive research project like mine on the Wyoming POW camps can sometimes be a very lengthy process and even tedious at times, and I really enjoyed visiting the communities where the POW camps were, finding information from all kinds of sources, and listening to the memories shared by the locals. That
0: is awesome. So overall, how long have you been researching this with purpose? Because it's fun to just kind of dally in it, but what year did you really start?
2: Um, intense research um, back in 2014 with Camp Dubois and then branched out. I spent a lot of time on Camp Dubois. We have a lot of information about the POW camp here. And then when I realized um, that there was little known about the other camps, I decided to go ahead and kind of expand my research. So the last two years, a little more than that, we've been uh, working on the other camps as well. Okay. For my own curiosity, what is your academic background? An environmental degree, and when I moved, and my career is environmental, but when I moved back here to Wyoming, I went back to school, I went to UW, and I um, earned a BA with an emphasis in history and archaeology.
0: Awesome, which I'm sure those, I mean, even your environmental background probably comes in handy when looking at campsites and figuring out what's there, who was there, and all that stuff.
2: That's exactly right. Um... You know, I was an environmental analyst for many years. So an important part of my research um, is reviewing and interpreting um, former POW campsites. How many many campsites were in Fremont County alone? Uh, Two. So we had – and actually we had Camp Du Bois, which we just talked about, and then Camp Riverton. Uh, Camp Riverton was an agricultural branch camp. It only operated the one year, 1945 – And the prisoners worked on area farms, uh, thinning, hoeing, and harvesting the sugar beets, and then doing other farm work like irrigating and haying. Okay.
1: Where was – did they have a a location somewhere in – Yeah.
2: The um, the camp was actually located um, at the armory, and there was very limited information on the Riverton POW camp. And we worked with the Riverton Museum and local historians – but my one of my best sources of information was the senior center, because we uh, the record showed that the camp was at the armory, but we had assumed that that was the armory at the fairgrounds. Go- there was an earlier armory in Riverton, and we were clued in by some of the uh, senior citizen residents um, off, off of um, South Adams.
1: Okay. Well, that's—I kind of derailed it a little bit, but that's Okay.
0: Yeah, that's what these interviews are all about, is figuring out, asking questions. If our audience ends up having questions, feel free to send them to us on our Facebook page or email us at one of our museums, and we'll make sure Cheryl's able to help answer them. Um, But getting back to the lovely questions list that we did prepare for this interview, so why is the topic of POW camps in Wyoming and more specifically in Fremont County important?
2: Well, the the establishment and the operation of the POW camps in Wyoming is relatively short-term, but it's an intriguing and very important part of our local and state history. And Fremont County is the only county in Wyoming in which its two branch camps at Camp Riverton and Camp Dubois represent the interests of both the agricultural and timber industries. So we have the timber uh, camp. Camp Dubois was a timber branch camp where the prisoners cut timber primarily to make railroad ties. And the ties were floated down the Wind River to Riverton, about 85 miles, to be treated at the creosote plant. And then they were shipped by rail where they were needed to help maintain the railroads. And then Camp Riverton, the agricultural uh, branch camp that we just talked about. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, and that kind of answered my my next question, or my first question I had when I found out that Camp Du Bois even existed, was why did the POW camp end up in Du Bois, Wyoming? It seems kind of like the edge of the world to most people coming into it.
2: It's a very isolated site. And it's about, you know, not, it's about nine miles from Du Bois. And it's at a very high elevation, you know, about 9,000 feet. And it's in the forest setting that, so that they could be close to the trees that they needed to cut down. Mm-hmm. And the camp operated from July of 44 to mid-January of 1946 seasonally, which, of course, is well after the war ended. And the camp would close down In January, when the snow got too deep to work, it would be closed through the winter and spring and then open up in the summer again in July of 45 when road conditions improved enough that they could get the trucks back in.
0: Okay, well, it's nice to know we wouldn't submit our POWs to a frosty Wyoming winter too much.
2: Well, they had temperatures uh, that plummeted to like 20 degrees below zero. The The camp commander set up a weather station, so we actually even know the weather was like huh. um, all the days that they were there. Oh, boy. He thought of everything.
0: So yeah. who lived in Camp Du Bois, and where did they come from?
2: So the camp residents were both U.S. military staff and German prisoners of war, and the population varied depending on the time of the year and the work that they needed to be done. And there were up to about 150 residents, including the 10 American military personnel and about 140 prisoners. And many of those prisoners were captured in North Africa or Italy. I would not have guessed that.
1: Did that differ substantially from the population in the in Camp Riverton, as far as
2: nation of origin or anything like that? Somewhat it did, because the Camp Riverton POWs um, were brought to Riverton later um, in. later during the war. And the Camp Dubois prisoners came from Scottsbluff, Nebraska. The Riverton prisoners, though, came from Camp Douglas. So there was a difference somewhat. And we can tell where they came from because we have rosters that have their um, serial numbers. So who was the man in charge? Lieutenant Harlemer was the commander throughout most of the operation of the camp. He was there from October Forty four until the camp closed in mid January of forty six, and most of the information we have about the camp is from Lieutenant Harlemer. He was he took um, very good records. You know, he took pictures. He had, he had meticulous records, and he gave us a lot of details of the daily operation of the camp.
0: Awesome. So, what would a day at Camp Dubois have been like? Work life? Did they play games? Did they have free time? Kind of thing.
2: Well, luckily, we we have a lot of that information from interviews and camp records and even literature from the POWs, and they describe a typical day at the camp, and the prisoners would be up at 6, and they'd leave the camp by 7 to go out and cut the timber at those nearby logging sites, and they'd work at the area sawmills. And there was a small group of prisoners that stayed at the camp, and they'd work in the camp kitchens, cutting firewood and doing other camp maintenance work. And at the end of the day, the prisoners returned to the camp by 5 o'clock p.m., and they'd eat in the POW mess hall. They'd do their camp chores, and then they had evenings off. And Camp Dubois POWs were lucky because they usually had both Saturday and Sundays off because they worked with civilian loggers. And during their time off, they could read, write letters. Sometimes they went on hikes. They worked on woodworking projects and played musical instruments and rested. It was hard work. Lights were out at ten o'clock,
0: so that if you say lights were out, do
2: you mean actual lights? They were they they had electric lights. They had two light plants um, that that were powered by generators.
0: And for those curious in the audience, there were people in Du Bois, residents and stuff that did not have electricity. So it just kind of goes to show some of the differences, I mean, that POWs were treated with because, again, the Geneva Convention said that POWs um, housed by American powers would get the same treatment as the military enlisted men that were supervising them. So
1: that kind of makes me we, we have a question about this, but I'm curious specifically about how, you know, if, if a Dubois resident didn't have power, but the the. Prisoners did how did, how did Dubois residents feel about having a prisoner of war camp so close?
2: Well, I did interview um several Dubois residents about Camp Dubois and the prisoners. And the camp was very isolated um and so interaction with the general public in Dubois was limited, and plus there wasn't very many people here at that time. But the local residents did occasionally see the Camp Du Bois POWs when they were um, transported through town, or some of them would actually ride up to the camp. We have photos of, you know, several local residents who did come up to the camp. Um, but the locals I spoke with, but they weren't concerned about having a POW camp located near here, and they recognized the need for the labor to cut that timber. Um, to make the railroad ties. That's definitely
0: surprising. It'd be interesting yeah. to see what that kind of situation, what would happen if that came up today in modern times. But
2: And, and I will say the electricity helped the um, American military personnel as well because, remember, it was e- probably easier to have the light plants, you know, powered by generator than some of the alternatives of the time, mm-hmm. you know, the kerosene and other lighting, and they needed lighting for security. That is true.
0: Okay, so how does Camp Dubois stand out from the other branch camps in Wyoming that you've visited? Or does it? I mean, it could just be another, it's one of 19,
2: but... Oh, it certainly does stand out. Camp Dubois is one of the best documented camps in Wyoming. And I wrote an article that was published back in 2015 for the Annals of Wyoming, the Wyoming History Journal, about Camp Du Dubois um, that highlights the extensive literature that was written by the camp residents. And that's why we have such good records. And I provided examples of some of the information provided by the U.S. military personnel in their military reports, their personal correspondence and photos. And in addition, the prisoners wrote essays and poems and memoirs that share important information about Camp Dubois and what it was like to be a POW there.
1: Were, were POWs at Camp Dubois ever allowed any contact with their families or anything like that, or am I completely naive for thinking that would even be a possibility?
2: They were so isolated um, in Dubois at the, at the timber camp. Um, when they got back to their base camp, which was in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, they um, there were more opportunities for them to visit with other POWs, to visit with um, any relatives they may have on specific times during the fenced areas, and they had a lot more opportunities in the base camp for sports, recreation, using the library. The opportunities up here for free time in Camp Dubois and visiting others were extremely limited because the camp was so isolated. hmm
0: and we do the Du Bois Museum actually does have an original postcard from one of the POWs that stayed at Camp Du Bois. It's on display in our hack gallery for those curious and able to visit the museum, definitely check that out. It's written in German. Um so if you don't really speak that, we do have a translated It translates to
1: Hello Mutta, Hello Fada, here I am at Camp Granada.
2: <laughs> Not quite. Well, almost actually um An abbreviated translation of that postcard um, says something to the effect where, please send me books to this camp, because his mother had sent him books, but he had moved to two other camps in the meantime, and he said, send them to this camp directly, otherwise I might go crazy here. (laughs) The nights were long.
0: The nights were long. I could believe that. Mm -hmm. So what is your favorite story about Camp Dubois that you discovered in your research?
2: I guess my favorite story... About Camp Dubois was the opportunity to interview Johann Pilhofer, who was a former Camp Dubois prisoner of war. And in 2017, government officials in Germany helped us track down Mr. Pilhofer, age 96, living in Germany, and he agreed to share his memories about Camp Dubois with us in written and Skype interviews. And he described daily camp life and the work he did. And he told us a lot of stories. He told us that the American guards shot game, such as deer and elk, which the prisoners would help process in the camp kitchen. And the guards shared the food with the prisoners. So it was great to hear a firsthand account of Camp Dubois' life from a former pr- prisoner's perspective. Yeah, that's,
0: I mean, that's really interesting. <laughs> it was
2: fascinating we had a great time Mm -hmm.
0: and i'm glad that you were able to do that and record that conversation just because 96 is at age for sure and so we're glad that his words and his knowledge that he could offer you were able to record and publish because you like we've said you have a book coming out it it comes out october 28th 2019 And I, like I said, I'm very excited to read it. I am excited to hear all the rest of the stories. I've been to some of your presentations. I went on a trek up to the POW camp with you, and I've heard all kinds of extra other details that we have not covered in this podcast interview. So for those of you who have been fascinated by Cheryl's interview and her answers and responses, there's even more information that she has. So I highly encourage you to check out her book, to check out her presentations that she gives. Um, and to reach out to us so we could ask Cheryl what questions you have. So where do you hope now to go that since your book is in its final stages of publication?
2: Well, I think we'll take a little break. We've been on the road for the past two years, you know, visiting those campsites across Wyoming and interviewing many people and giving presentations. But I expect to be on the road um, sharing information about the camps in 2022 for programs commemorating the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II.
0: So this is excellent timing. Perfect timing. Yeah, and we are so excited to have you come on our podcast and give us this information. We are looking forward to finding out more and sharing this part of Du Bois and Fremont County history. And Cheryl's book does talk about not just Camp Du Bois, although that's my personal favorite. Zach can argue. Camp Riverton um, was better. <laughs> well, we don't know as much about Camp Riverton. So Du Bois is better by default.
1: We're better at keeping secrets.
0: Oh, okay. Touche. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you very much, Cheryl, for meeting with us and doing an interview. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us through the 10th episode of Rediscover the Winds, the Wyoming History Podcast.
1: We have several more podcast episodes planned for you guys. Next month is forest fire season and wildfire season, and it's just that nice, hot, dry time of year. So uh, get out your hot dog sticks and your marshmallows and join us for the hottest episode of the Rediscover the Winds podcast you've ever heard.
0: So if you liked what you heard today, like us on Facebook at Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. We also have a YouTube page, a Stitcher account, an iTunes account what have you. If you listen to podcasts, we are probably on that app. We post pictures of the people, places, and things we talk about in episodes and give you guys sneak peeks into future episodes.
1: If you've already followed us on our various platforms, thank you. Your support means the world to us. We hope that you guys get the chance to visit our museums, attend some of our museums, or attend some of our museum's upcoming events.
0: And boy, do we have a ton of events coming up. Summer has started. Actually, we're like halfway through summer in the Wind River Valley and Basin. So there's... A lot of stuff that we've done, but there's still a lot of things for visitors and residents to do. Coming up this weekend, for example, the Dubois Museum has our big annual fundraising event on July 20th called Museum Day. Admission to the Dubois Museum is free all day, but between 11 and 2 p.m., guests can stop in to see exhibitors, taste hearty homestead stew and fry bread, peruse our bake sale, and visit the Living History Cabins. We're hosting a hoop dancer from the Wind River Indian Reservation at 1130 and the Draper Museum Raptor Experience from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West will be presenting their live raptor program at 1 p.m., so do not miss this first-time experience at Museum Day. First time? Is this your first one? It is not our first time doing Museum Day, but it is the first time we've ever had a hoop dancer or a live raptor
1: program. Sounds very exciting. It will be. Be there or be square. That's right. Bailey Tire and Auto Service and the Pit Stop Travel Center sponsors our children's exploration series. And we have one of those events coming up um, between now and and mid-August. And that is on August 10th at the Riverton Museum. We are making superhero cuffs and learning about some of the superheroes that made Riverton the town that it is today. And that is from 2 to 4 p.m. again on August 10th at the Riverton Museum.
0: And the Wyoming Community Bank sponsors all Discovery Speaker Series, which are free and open to the public. We have one coming up between now and mid-August, and that's at the Lander Museum, so the Fremont Pioneer Museum, which is titled Tribal Warrior Art, the History of Native American Ledger Drawings. On August 15th at 7 p.m. at the Lander Museum, archaeologist and historian James Stewart will discuss the unique art form and the images on the Native American ledgers displayed in the museum.
1: And the Wind River Visitor Council sponsors the uh, Adventure Trek series. And from the Riverton Museum on July 27th, we are going out to Castle Gardens, uh, which is a beautiful spot in the middle of the Wyoming desert that is covered in ancient petroglyphs. So it's a definitely do not miss this. The trek will begin at the Riverton Museum. We'll be taking a a bus out there. Uh, We'll leave at 9 o'clock in the morning. The cost is $8 per person. Transportation's included. Um, But you're going to want to bring a a bottle of water and spots are limited to that. So um, please sign up in advance by either stopping by the Riverton Museum or, or calling us.
0: And so the Dubois Museum also has an adventure trek on August 13th at 7 p.m. We're doing a historic walking tour of Dubois, where visitors can learn the history of old Dubois, led by museum staff. This trek will start at the Dubois Museum and will walk through the historic downtown area, ending in front of the Rustic Pine Tavern, which will give folks the chance to finish the night square dancing, just like the old times. So it's $8 per person for this trek, and advanced registrations are required. So call the Bois Museum or stop in to put your name on a list.
1: Okay. Well, we'd like to once again thank Cheryl O'Brien for sharing her knowledge with us. Make sure to check out her book, World War II POW Camps of Wyoming. It'll be out on October 28th, 2019.
0: And thanks for listening to this Wyoming History Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And
1: I'm Zach from the Riverton Museum.
0: We look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you
2: next, next time. time.